back to space castle your clubhouse and ours for all things nerdy i am seth i'm dt and i'm alex and i have been thinking oh here we uh, go again <laughs> yeah it yeah f- it feels like you're thinking about something every week yeah you know i i spend a lot of time sitting behind a computer programming and in doing so i think uh, quite a lot i hope so <laughs> and I have I have been thinking about hobbies. I have some would say an infinite number of hobbies, but whatever. We'll not go there. It's pretty it's pretty extensive, yeah. I have quite a lot of hobbies and most of them are solitary endeavors and that got me thinking that like most hobbies that I can think about are solitary sort of endeavors and I think that's interesting and weird. And I don't know why. The only the only non-solitary endeavors, hobbies that I can think of are like sports and games. But like, why though? Why why are those things? I think we should do a podcast episode about this topic Whoa. and discuss why. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Yeah? Okay. We're going to have to make a podcast first, I think. <laughs> uh, I've got I, a great idea, guys. Let's start a podcast. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah? Are you guys in? Okay, cool. We could call it something dumb like Space Castle. Ooh. No. We'll call it Three Guys with Giant Dicks talking about <laughs> hobbies. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> Did you read Seth's mind? Wow. I know, right? <laughs> uh, I, have, I have thoughts on this, Seth. Okay, Alex, you, you've never steered me wrong. I'm hoping that you don't have thoughts. I'm hoping you have answers because I need answers well i always think i have answers whether or not that's accurate that's you know for someone else to decide but i'll tell you what my thoughts are and uh if you deem them to be answers then great perfect uh i think i think you you get solitary hobbies because hobbies is something that you you do on your downtime personally like yeah if it would be ideal if you could have community for every hobby that you have but at the end of the day you take advantage of the time that you have with your hobbies. Like if, if I could do a hobby with other folks at any time, they'd have to be on call, right? Like they'd have to, I'd have to say, Hey, I want to go play a basketball right now. Let's go. That's my hobby, whatever it is. I realized most of my hobbies earlier on in life were extroverted hobbies, like think like playing sports, like you talked about, right? Like in college, I was, I was in intramural sports. I was, uh, hanging out with people all the time though it was it was because i was an extrovert after college when i left i became much more introverted and i thought oh all of my hobbies now are things that i do solo like i read i write i play i play more like solo video games i uh i picked up disc golf like very solitary but at the end of the day those things once you once you get better at them or you feel more comfortable in the community setting you can make them more community-based 
you know, for woodworking, you can go to a makerspace. For disc golf, you can go to a league. Um, you you can find community in sol- solitary hobbies. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing is a lot of hobbies are community based. Like there's, like you play disc golf, I play regular golf, um, old old person golf, and <laughs> old person ball <laughs> golf. <laughs> uh, and like you play with people, but you're still playing alone. Like you're playing against yourself and the course. You're not playing. It's not like like it's not a team sport, which are inherently not solitary. But even a lot of the like not solitary hobbies that I have, I'm still doing them alone, but just nearby other people who are also doing them alone at the same time. <laughs> but isn't, I mean, isn't competition inherently community based? Like you, you're up against other people who are also competing. I mean, yes, but the competition is generally, I mean, for a lot of these sports is generally like against the course or the challenge, not and it it's like like even like time attack racing or something right is like you are trying to get the highest score and you're compared to other people's high scores but you're not directly like it it's not basketball you're not playing against them you're not playing with them you're just playing alone and then seeing how your alone thing compares to other people's alone things i think you just defined baseball <laughs> <laughs> yeah isn't that interesting though I, I i feel like that's so weird that like there's so many hobbies that are just alone and happen to be doing it alone with other people also doing it alone why like it's so weird to me it's just time allocation i don't know as a father that's what i feel like i'm like oh if i can find two minutes to work on a project great but that's not going to be something that i'm going to be able to do unless it's podcasting uh do with my friends so what about, what about you, DT? What do you think? I think a lot of it has to do with what Alex was saying about how it's something we take up because we enjoy doing it, but also because it's something we can do in our own individual free time. We don't have to wait around or organize it. We can just do it and pick it up as we like and put it down as we like as well. I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of skill-based hobbies are kind of solitary just by nature. I mean... If you're trying to do some woodworking with somebody else, that could actually be potentially dangerous because there's too much stuff going on, too much communication needs to happen. If you're learning how to cook or you love to cook as a hobby, having another person in the kitchen with you could be taking up valuable space. It could, again, be dangerous. I think there's a psychological factor where if you're learning a new skill, it's a very personal thing. You don't necessarily want an audience Hmm. because you're learning that skill and you might be somewhat kind of you know, sensitive about it or, or kind of shy about it. Yes. Um, I, I think a lot of hobbies develop into a more community aspect after you've kind of gotten good at that. But when you're starting out in the hobby, you don't want somebody watching you because you're learning. And if you fuck up, then it's, it's your time that's wasted by throwing that project away and starting over. You're not wasting somebody else's time. I totally feel that my example of that it, it, with the, from the disc golf perspective is like, the first six months that I played, I didn't want to go to a league, mostly because of COVID, but like <laughs> I didn't want to go to a league because I didn't feel like I had the the chops. Like I didn't feel like I was good enough yet, even though in retrospect, uh, because I played uh, some ultimate Frisbee in college and I uh, am generally athletic, I was able to throw further and more accurately than many people that, that start disc golf. Humble brag. Um, I'm still not, not good. <laughs> I'm, I'm like definitely still working on my game, but I could have easily gone to league, but I was intimidated because it's like, yeah, I don't want to go 
and show people that I don't know what the difference in difference between an understable and overstable disc is. And I don't have a fairway driver, know when to employ that. And I imagine the same is with ball golf or any other hobby. You know, if I was a, a woodworker going to a makerspace, if I didn't know how to use a chop saw, I, I wouldn't want to go. Sure. Um, yeah. So I feel like you've, you've got to work out those kinks on your own, those little like small things. And that's why I think a lot of hobbies are, are sort of solitary, at least to begin with, right? You, you Once you find that comfort level, I think they become more community-based. Yeah. Not just disc golf, not just woodworking, not just, you know, gaming or whatever. I'm, I mean, one of my other hobbies from the introvert perspective was writing. But you don't want to go into a writing group and start, you know, critiquing other people's work until you have something that, of your own that you've written and that you've worked through. Or maybe you've taken the time to, to find out what your story beats are and learn more about the craft. Yeah, um, when you're starting out writing or you're, you're learning your craft, you don't necessarily want to throw out your first couple of projects for for critique. Because I think when you're doing it that early, you might actually be stymieing your own growth. Like you're learning the tools, you're learning what works for you, you're learning how to, how to craft something and put it together. And I, I think you need to experiment and really mess around with it, really fuck around with it for a while before you start showing it to other people unless you're doing a podcast and uh, really learn your craft and learn your trade and kind of develop the skills. And then you go forward and you show that to other people and get it critiqued and get feedback so you can continue learning your craft and your skills after you've gotten past that novice point. So I think it's like a, it's sort of like a writer's passage thing. It's like, I'm not going to write my first novel and just throw it out there and see what people think. I'm going to, I'm going to spend a lot of time developing the characters and crafting the story and writing a whole bunch of different things from a whole bunch of different genres and points of view and really develop my own voice as a writer and then throw it out there and see if I'm any good. You know what I mean? Yeah, except there's the argument to be made that as a, a novice, hobbyist, whatever you want to call it, you're going to develop a lot faster if you have somebody that's teaching you how to do that thing. I mean, that's an apprenticeship more than it is just like a, a proper hobby, but I feel like for instance, I learned so much more about woodworking early on by, you know, talking with Seth about it and watching my father-in-law build stuff and helping out with some of their projects. Like you, you pick things up a lot faster by not being so introverted with your hobby, hmm. by trying to find connections with other folks who are doing it. Um, writing groups could, could function in the same way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the human endeavor, right? Is that's why we have communities. You always learn better if you have someone to help teach you oh seth please wax rhapsodic about philosophy in terms of learning and <laughs> how we interpret the world look if i'm good for anything at all it's about talking about woodworking and then turning deeply philosophical that's like my <laughs> personality well let's hear it man let's hear it tell me about how we learn tell me about how we learn things and and, and interpret the world well yeah i mean that's that's the whole thing is is, is humans have communities and we're social animals for a reason and that is because learning takes place when someone's teaching like learning yourself like learning completely alone in a vacuum takes forever because you have to be the teacher for yourself and if if anybody else can facilitate that whether that's a youtube tutorial or your grandfather or whatever it happens much much more quickly instead of you know this long kind of drawn out learning experience that takes you forever to kind of get comfortable with the problems you're trying to solve in a way that you feel like you can both participate in a group setting and also not, you know, 
be embarrassed in a group setting as well. Like that takes a lot of time. But if someone can teach you, then you get over that speed bump much more quickly and you become better at, at your skill in no amount of time, basically. So there's it's always going to be better to learn with people. But that being said, because we are such social animals, embarrassment is a huge actual physical and physiological response for us. Like embarrassment is not just feeling embarrassed like it it has an actual physical response in our bodies so we're deeply like ingrained to be opposed to being embarrassed because you know a whole bunch of early stage human things where you did something wrong and it did they'd kick you out of the group and you would starve to death outside the cave (laughs) right so we're we really really don't want to do something wrong in a social setting and because of that like we tend to do things alone so that we can like we're okay being wrong to ourselves like that's fine if i fuck some shit up like cool i'm fine but if i fuck some shit up like in front of somebody who either i don't know or knows this thing better than me or is my wife it doesn't matter like you get embarrassed because like someone watched you fuck up and that's an entirely different situation Do, do you guys have those moments where like pivotal moments in your in your development that you remember like very distinctly where you like you learned how to do something and it changed everything the way that you like perceived the thing that you were working on yes i mean sure in hobbies but like maybe just in life in general there's that wise man's fear quote um from patrick rothfuss where he's talking about um this quote if you give a man an answer all he gains is a little fact but if you give him a question he'll look for his own answers so there's that thing of like the process of discovery that yeah, you might have an apprenticeship and you learn something much more quickly and efficiently, or you know the thing that years and years of of working on this and accumulated knowledge will tell you the best way to do it. But if you just like figure it out for yourself, uh, you you potentially are going to become an even better craftsman, or um, you know that that particular hobby will uh, you know have a lot more legs in the future. So I don't know. Do you have you have moments like that? Do you remember particular moments? I, I have a distinct moment that I think uh, is is the single cement foundation that is my entire life. Whoa. Holy shit. Are you willing to share this experience in a public setting? <laughs> Everything else in my whole life was built on this moment, and I'll talk about it real fast. Because it's not, it's not a big moment. It's nothing special. Uh, when I was young, I my memory is shit, so I couldn't tell you exactly how young I was, but somewhere in the, like, eight year old range um my dad is a carpenter and has been for 150 years (laughs) he's a wizard (laughs) and that's the secret guys all you have to do is live to be 300 and you'll be great at things my dad's been a carpenter I, i grew up around tools and architecture and all kinds of stuff like my dad would just talk to me about why roofs are pitched and things like that because I was a curious kid, I guess. But uh, he had like a, a, a woodworking chisel, which are tend to be quite sharp and like, you know, quote, finely crafted, right? It's not uh, a carpenter's chisel that is just meant to scrape paint off shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he had like one of these chisels laying down and I was like looking at it and I was like, dad, why is, why is the chisel like ramped like this? Like, what is this? Why is it this shape? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. Why don't you figure it out? And like those two things, like, I don't know. It's like, okay, my dad might not know a thing. That's revolutionary. And also, why don't I figure it out? So I like did. I like, he had a bunch of woodworking books and I pulled a couple of them out. It's like, do you say 
woodworking, and this is for woodworking. The answer is in here. And I asked him, is this where answer is? And he said, yeah, probably. So I looked through there, and it like there was a diagram of a chisel in wood where it's showing like the blade of the chisel like partially in a chunk of wood and a piece of that wood kind of like being curved and, and shaved Curling away by the, the ramp yeah. on that chisel. And that like clicked for me. So I had this like maybe hour long kind of process of like realizing that my father might not know a thing and it's okay not to know a thing, learning how to figure it out myself and then finding the answer and like knowing a fundamental truth about how tools work now. Whoa. And like that whole process is absolutely foundational to my personality, which is why I'm like self-taught in all the things I do. It's cemented like a deep curiosity and a, a very like, I don't know, I'll figure it out myself kind of mentality. And like, I, it's, it's weird. It's like a flashbang memory, right? Like I can point most of my personality to that one event and it's fascinating. I'm going to throw it out there that I think Seth's dad knew exactly what that tool was for. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was saying. Like he, fu it's a chisel. Like he knew how it worked, obviously. Yeah, but the brilliance of his parenting was, one, making you look it up and learn it for yourself, but also something that all parents should do is teach their kids to not be fully dependent on the parent and accept and understand that maybe your parent doesn't know everything and you should go and learn something on your own as well. Yeah, dude. As a father, I think about that all the time. Like I want at some point my toddler to feel, feel uh, when she's older that she can handle the world on her own, not because I don't want to help her through it, but because I want to be confident that she knows how to get through all the twists and turns. DT, Seth kind of talked about from a, like a crafting perspective, from a making perspective. Do you have like a design moment that really like stuck out to you? Like this is a game changer? Yeah, actually. I mean, I, I've been a graphic designer for more than half my life now. Um, it's not so much developing my skills on my own because I was primarily self-taught, but it was um, working with teams of graphic designers where I think I really flourished and, and grew as a, as a professional. Um, so I worked for, for a number of years, I've worked independently as a, as a graphic designer outside of a team. I was just like a, a one-man show. And uh, a couple of years ago, I actually ended up working for a big national grocery store chain. I won't say which one. <laughs> but um, my desk mate was this fantastic graphic designer slash animator, super cool chick, um, very, very cool. And uh, I don't know if she knows this. Uh, I, I sent her links to the podcast, so she might listen to this. She might get a big head over it. But, <laughs> but just sitting next to her and just, just working with her, um, I grew my skills with InDesign like tenfold. Nice. Like I knew about InDesign. I knew the ins and outs. I knew how to do stuff. But I learned so much of like the nuances and the synergy between it and Photoshop and Illustrator and how to build something in InDesign from scratch. And now InDesign is actually, aside from photo editing, it's now my primary program, like my go-to. Nice. So that was a huge game changer for me because the job I do now, which I absolutely love and adore, it's like 95% InDesign. So if I hadn't had that time working with with that designer, uh, I won't say her name just for her own privacy sake, but um, if I hadn't had that time in that environment working with her, I would not be suited for the job I have now. And I absolutely love this job. Like the job I have now is by far the best job I've ever had. That's great. So yeah, working with somebody as, as I don't think she intended to be my mentor, but I absorbed so much from her that it was like a game changer for me developmentally as a graphic designer, for sure. Hell yeah. So we've, we've discussed at great length how I think all three of us are kind of leaning towards the fact that hobbies are better and more 
robust with other people present. But we're living in the time of COVID right now where that's not really a feasible environment to develop a new talent or a new skill or a new hobby. Um, going forward with everybody picking up new hobbies and learning new skills while being forced to be solitary, um, my question is, because YouTube is such a, a readily available resource for learning something new, and we kind of develop like sort of an emotional attachment to the YouTube you know, people we, we partake in. Like, I, I certainly feel like it's, it's kind of weird. Like, it's not like a, I don't feel like I know that person, but there's a certain kinship because of the things I've learned from them. Do you think we live in a society now where it is more socially acceptable to not have the interaction with somebody directly while you're developing a hobby and instead being more solitary and independent, but still learning from somebody as kind of like a, like a new age, weird, almost sort of warped apprenticeship? I think that that is exactly what's happening, but we're seeing YouTubers or people that post Instagram videos or whatever where, like, oh, I picked up this new hobby and they're fucking great at it because they're only showing, you know, after the fact or the shit that they did well or whatever. And I think that's going to skew a lot of the educational thing where if you're trying to learn a, a skill from someone who's only showing you the good parts and not the fuck ups then like you're going to have a really low self-esteem effect on your own on your own work yeah yeah on your own on your own work which i think is what is going to separate a lot of the the good quote youtubers from the bad youtubers where good youtubers in in hobby spaces tend to show the things that they've fucked up as well um, because that's super valuable so it, i think that we are seeing that we are seeing a lot of i mean i i i personally have quite a lot of that like I feel a close kinship with a lot of the people on YouTube that I've learned things from who never know that I exist, right? So there, there's a little bit of celebrityism in that where, you know, an audience knows a lot about one person, but that one person doesn't know anything about the audience. Um, but I think that because of YouTube being such a personal and easy to upload resource, like you're seeing quote mere mortals like steve ramsey is teaching people how to do a thing so it it is a lot more personal in general it's not you know whatever the diy show on cable is right it's it is already more personal so i don't know man we're gonna see a lot of weird sort of solitary but also showing off things happening i don't know it's gonna be weird i think i mean you were getting into whether or not YouTubers can have integrity with, with their work and be transparent with their audience. And cause, cause that's it. Like the, the, the woodworking channels that I appreciate are the ones that it's like, Hey, look, I had a really close run in with the table saw and let's talk about safety because now I have a scar on my finger that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. And it could have been a lot worse. Yes. So I think it's just about integrity, but at the end of the day, as far as hobbies go, like YouTube is a great resource, but I, I think it goes back to you know what you were you were talking about Seth with your story that thing that kind of like uh transformed the way that you look at the world when your dad says I don't know yeah that's that's great but I feel like all the I feel like all the people that I know that pick things up really quickly and can adapt to those hobbies very quickly are the people that know how to uh educate themselves I mean maybe that's a that's a whole other topic to talk about because I think that being able to learn is one of the most important skills that most people like don't actively cultivate. And I think that's a mistake. I I shouldn't say most people, but I think a lot of people don't actively cultivate the skill of 
being able to learn. Absolutely. Being able to learn a new skill is, I think that's kind of the whole key around hobbies. Is I think that's why so many people have them and so many people enjoy them is like figuring stuff out for yourself is important for like your mental health. Like being able to problem solve on your own is incredibly important. And having a hobby lets you kind of do that in a safe space, sort of like hobby hobbies in and of themselves are a safe space for you to fuck up. So just start, just try it. Yeah. Get started on something. Yeah. Get yourself a hobby folks. It'll change your damn life. <laughs> do you guys have a, do you guys have a hobby that you haven't gotten into that you've been, you've been kind of thinking about? I'll give you an example first. I'll, I'll kick it off. Like for me, it was uh, gardening. Like I never mm. thought I would want to get into gardening, but I started watching all these videos on like how to grow microgreens and get peppers going in your backyard. And I'm like, oh, that'd be fun. It seems like one of those Zen things. I think it's why I liked Animal Crossing so much. There's like, <laughs> something very s- slow and routine that takes some manual labor that I can just like chip away at. But it's not and, a full-time job like Stardew Valley or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a Stardew Valley or anything like that. It's <laughs> it's something that I could go out, spray down the spray down the pepper plants, get some get the cucumbers going or whatever, and just like or the zucchini or whatever, and then just kind of let it go and check in every now and then. So I don't know that I don't know. What, what do you guys have? Is it something that you wanted to get into that you haven't done yet? Uh, I love craft beer and I've always wanted to get really heavily into like brewing my own beer. Yeah. Uh, Alex, you and I did it once a couple of years ago and I absolutely love the experience of just sitting out in the back patio somewhere. It was awesome. Going through all the motions, doing all the, the mash ton shit and boiling and sitting out there for eight hours and brewing it and bottling it. And I, I fell in love with it. Um, now that I'm in Colorado, which is like the craft brew capital of the world, and I actually know, know people now who like avidly like brew at home, uh, that's something I desperately want to get into because it's something I've really, really loved drinking and imbibing <laughs> and learning more about. But it's something up to this point, aside from rare occasions, I've ever had the opportunity to partake in actually creating it. Uh, I worked in a brewery briefly uh, in 2020, just before COVID hit. And I was uh, a quote-unquote cellarman. So I wasn't directly involved with the brewing process, but I was helping, you know, like cleaning kegs, maintaining the equipment, keeping the the brew house clean and all that stuff. But uh, I just worked to further enforce my desire to learn how to do it and create beer because I love it. And I think think I've got a nose for it. So I don't know. Yeah. I have a complicated answer to this question, Alex, like all things in my life. <laughs> um, yeah. Surprise, surprise. Who, who could have ever seen this coming? Um, I don't really have a hobby that I've wanted to pursue but haven't. I'd really like to distill whiskey, but that's mega illegal to do like at home, unlike brewing beer. Uh, <laughs> but like even when I was in Scotland and stuff, like distilling is cool, but I – it's not like I'm not like yearning to get into it. There's the thing the thing about me is like all of the hobbies that I want to get into, I have kind of already done that. Like you're already done it. I was going to say out of all of us, you've you've you're the most ag- aggressively you're the one that's aggressively pursuing. <laughs> yeah, that's like where I spend most of my time is like I'll just fucking go for it. Like I really wanted to um learn how to like forge and cast metal. So I just built a forge in my dad's backyard and fucking did it. Like Alex came in and we learned how to fucking 
Yeah, we learned how to cast metal in my dad's backyard because, like, fuck it. Like, Th- that's how we became friends. <laughs> yeah. I know that story, actually. I've heard that story before. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, didn't didn't Alex burn the shit out of his finger? <laughs> oh, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for immortalizing that terribly embarrassing story. No. Yeah, yeah, but no, Alex came up to me and he was like, yeah, I was learning how to cast metal at this dude Seth's house and, like, I burned the shit out of my finger. He was telling me about Seth and I was like, I gotta meet this dude. This, this dude sounds dope as shit. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's it it was great. Yeah, it was. Turns out, folks, if you don't if you don't cool off molten metal after it's been in the forge, uh, it remains hot. Um, <laughs> yeah. If if I remember correctly, you had grabbed the thing and you said, "Ow, fuck! I thought I had my glove on." <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> no, I thought it was cool. I think I said, "Ow, fuck! I thought it was cool," because the it, what happens when you pour molten aluminum on the concrete it kind of puddles and then it becomes solid after it cools off a little bit but most of the time we were taking that metal and dunking it in some water which if as soon as you dunk it in water you can basically pick it up again and it's it's cool to the touch um that's not the case all the time depending on how hot your forge is but i i had thought everything that was on the concrete had been dipped in the water and it had not been so I picked up a essentially a puddle of molten aluminum. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty uh, with my thumb. Uh, but you know, totally recovered, totally fine. It was just a nice blister. It's a nice blister for for about two weeks. The shitty the shitty thing is, if it was actually molten, like you probably would have been fine because of the light and frost effect. But it was like mostly cool, mm-hmm. which is why you got burned, <laughs> which is so dumb. Yeah. But so like, there's to, to, to circle back. Uh, maybe we'll tell the the actual story of how we became friends because it's interesting. <laughs> uh, at some point, uh, uh, most of the hobbies I want to do, I I get into. Like I just recently, um, I kind of finally decided I wanted to like learn how to do m- DIY like mechanical keyboards and build my own keyboard because I use a keyboard all day every day and like being able to use a thing all day that's kind of custom built for my own preferences would be great. So I just fucking did that. I just learned how to do the thing and I learned how to program keyboards um, almost from scratch, which maybe I'll pursue deeper, but like, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of how I do things. It's like, I, I just pick up new hobbies when I feel like it. So there isn't really a thing that I want to do that I haven't. There you go. Listeners take a, take a page out of Seth's book and just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Just fucking do it. Yeah, don't let anything stop you. Like, don't mentally play games where you're going to, like, build roadblocks to prevent yourself from doing something you want to try. Be like Seth and just fucking do it. Yeah. It's really hard for me not to get frustrated with some people because there's people that are like, oh, I'd really like to, like, get into this career, but I don't even know where to start. And it's like, just fucking, just start. Like, just go. Just figure it out. Like, get on YouTube and be like, how do I start this thing? And then that's how you start. You did it. Hooray. So it's really hard for me not to get frustrated if people are like, I don't know where to start. Like, I get it because I also don't know where to start most of the time. But like there are resources. If you just said, yeah, if you literally go to Google and be like, I don't know where to start this thing I want to try. Like you will find the answer to that and you will get started. <laughs> <laughs> just 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 do it. Just start. You. That's what's so cool about like the 21st century and our society as it stands and uh, granted we're super privileged to live in in america and have a lot of the opportunities we have and be able to pay our bills and all that stuff right but like if you have a lot of those same opportunities you can just figure out and do whatever you feel like like if you feel like making wooden canoes like you can just do that you can learn how to do that and 
do that. <laughs> like you, you have the ability, uh, granted, if you have the opportunities, which I, I know is not everybody. And I know that that's a huge thing, but if you have, you know, basic opportunities like that, you can learn anything. You can do basically anything at this point, you know, going, going to Mars might be a bit of a stretch, but like, you never know. Maybe you'll, uh, you know, start a new company and make a couple billion dollars and then you can go to Mars. Yeah. I think that is an excellent note to kind of wrap this up and move on to our, our next segment. Like, Seth, you're one of the most inspirational people I know. And I don't mean to blow up your, your head, but <laughs> what, what better note to wrap up a topic about hobbies than to say, if you want to learn something, just fucking do it like Seth does. Be like Seth. Yeah. Uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we go ahead and move on and talk about today's, uh, we're not going to say sponsor, because nobody's actually paying us just yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Alex, why don't you tell us about today's not real sponsor? Tell us about the the product that is motivating you currently. Speaking of hobbies and woodwork, uh, this episode is brought to you by Japanese pole saws, which um, if you're unfamiliar, the difference between a, a pole saw from the, the sort of eastern environment as opposed to a western saw western saw is one that you push it's that typical saw tooth that you see a japanese pole saw has two sides to it one for ripping and one for doing cross cuts so uh i find them to be incredibly useful uh seth actually recommended one to me for the first time and i was like oh i've seen this sort of before but only one-sided for a like kind of dovetail saw but japanese pole saws are great they've got a great handle they're relatively inexpensive you can replace them quickly if you want and they don't really lose their edge as quickly as a typical saw. So I find them to be incredibly useful. When I switched to using a Japanese pole saw, cutting through like a, a four by four was so much faster than using just like a traditional saw. And I had to use probably one tenth the effort that I would typically have to use. I want to jump in real fast and kind of explain. So uh, a Japanese pole saw, like the name might suggest, but you may not get from context, you cut wood on the pull stroke so when you're pulling the saw towards you instead of a western style saw which cuts on the push stroke so because of that you get like a shit ton of excellent like dexterity and control and just it's so much easier to cut things on on a more precise fashion than a western style push saw so yes and they're typically more flexible. Thanks for, for um, clarifying that, Seth. So the teeth uh, face in the opposite direction, essentially, which is what allows you to cut on the pull stroke. Um, but they're, they're a little bit flimsy and flexible, so you, you kind of take it out of the packaging. It kind of whips around, but um, once you get it working on the wood, um, it allows you to have a little bit more versatility, and it's a lot quicker, a lot less effort. Definitely worth the, the – I mean, you can find one for 25 bucks um, from a nice brand name. Mm-hmm. What's so great is that $25 saw is fucking amazing. Like it's an excellent saw for $25. Right. It's cool. It's, it's, it reminds me, it's one of those things. It's like, this is crafted so well, uh, with inexpensive materials, you can still make something, uh, super efficient and you don't see that very often. Usually, usually the price is hiked up or something like that. So this is an excellent tool to put into your put on your wall control like i have or your in your toolbox i i actually haven't owned a western style saw my entire life my my dad loves them 
and has like a fondness for antique saws like that too. But I, you know, learning when I was young to, to use a saw, that's what I used it on. And it's like in early high school, maybe I found out that pole saws were like a thing. And I tried one uh, at a woodworking shop and literally I've never looked back. Like I don't own any push saws. I'd never, I probably never will <laughs> because pulling is just a much better way to do it. <laughs> cool. Well, while we're on the, the hobby train and DT, we're t- you were talking about brewing. Do you want to, do you want to get into our deep cut? Good Lord. What a smooth seg. Guys, we're getting, we're getting so good at podcasting. Yeah, I'm one, so proud of us. <laughs> Look at us developing it, this hobby as a group. <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> One one of a one of us is a writer and he flexes it sometimes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. To uh, to very poetic results. Yes. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My deep cut this week is uh, it's a local brewing company here in Colorado, uh, Denver more specifically, and they're called True Brewing. It's uh, T R V E. They got the old like the Ruka spelling Scandinavian death metal kind of vibe, which I'll get into. But uh, yeah, it's a brewery uh, located here in Denver, Colorado, and uh, it's owned by a guy named uh, Nick Nuns. And um, I'm always inspired by new, delicious, unusual beers and circumstances in which they're created. And what sets True Brewing apart is the fact that when they decided to start a brewery, they kind of broke away from the tra- like the traditional Colorado destination tap room setting, which is semi-industrial, slabs of concrete. Mm-hmm. Yep. You've got your, your, your <laughs> traditional, like your your umbrellas above the tables and it's all kind of green and like it's like a very like yeah like farmhouse slash like factory type setting and what they're doing it true is you walk in and you feel like you're in a like a hole in the wall concert venue like you walk in and there's somebody up at like a a counter at the the front door and to your right there's like a chain link fence that's been attached to the wall that's got all the merch on it so it feels like you're walking to like a like the type of place like i used to go hang out with in in my early 20s in uh, Tempe, Arizona, just to go see live music every weekend. And you walk in and they play nothing but death metal. Yes. Like they do not <laughs> change their playlist. Like it is death metal. And there's like ornate, like baffle mat, like fucking Beelzebub scrolls on the wall. And there's like, there's the place is lit by sconces along the wall. <laughs> and it's, this is my place. Yeah. The tables and benches are like big, like custom pieces of wood that have been cut and roughed up and, and lacquered and shit. And it's, the vibe is nothing like anything else in Colorado and like nothing else I've ever actually experienced as a brewery. Um, it's a super small hole in the wall place, but the vibe is just fucking killer. Cause if you know any metalheads, you know that they may look intimidating, but like 9.9999 times out of 10, that metalhead is going to be like the biggest teddy bear, sweetest person, mm-hmm. <laughs> most loyal, friendly guy you'll ever meet. And it's just that sense of community of like death metal and beer that comes together that just makes this place absolutely beautiful and lovely and super fun to hang out in. Fuck yeah. They're also really fucking good at making beer. So I'm actually, <laughs> as we're recording this, I'm drinking their, their Stout Zero, uh, which is in season now. And like the can has got like the Grim Reaper and it's like the dopest, most death metal like album cover artwork you've ever seen. And it's a really goddamn good stout. But every single one of their beers is unique and interesting and different. Like they'll do like pale ales with like juniper thrown in and like just all kinds of cool shit that shouldn't work but absolutely does. Uh, last time I was I was in, um, they just decided for whatever reason to be focusing on farm ales and sours. So I did a flight of sours and I am a big fan of sour beers. They're an acquired taste, but there is a very thick broad line between a good sour and a bad sour. Hit or miss for me, yeah. I've had some really terrible sours that were just not handled properly. 
I've seen some places that actually did like a base sour and you add your own flavor to it. And it, it just, it's weird. It's, it's a very nuanced, very tricky type of beer to get right. And these guys just knocking out of the park every single time. Nice. But you wouldn't That's think great. about like going to like a death metal themed brewery and having like a raspberry sour. It's, <laughs> yeah, just, it's just fucking cool. Like they're just doing whatever the fuck they want to do. And um, I don't want to see them get massive because I, I like it being kind of like a, like a hidden gem here in Colorado. Even though they're really popular here in Colorado, they distribute all through the area and you can find all their stuff pretty easily in not necessarily grocery stores, but like liquor stores because a lot of the stuff they create is not high velocity. It'll, it, it has a shelf life. It, it'll find its customers, find its audience without having to be, you know, dumped out or replaced immediately. But yeah, True Brewing in Denver, Colorado, just super cool place. I've listened to podcasts where they interview the owner and like his vibe is just super cool. Like it's just, they're doing whatever the fuck they want to do. They're doing something they're very passionate about and they're doing it really, really well. Love it. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to have to scope it out next time. I'm in Give me area. more of yeah. that. Oh, yeah. When you come back to see your folks, like, we're going to fucking true. Like, yeah, I'm dying to take your parents because, yeah, I know your dad likes some metal. He's more like the Queen's Rec aspect of metal, but I think he'd really dig it. But it's a cool place to just go and hang out. And it's death metal, but it's not, like, blaring, assaulting, like, you can't hear yourself think type of thing. It's like it sets the ambiance and you can still have good conversations. Nice. So Sick. Yeah, ideal. The, the, the location, the, the tap room is just as well balanced and carefully constructed as their beers. Excellent, man. Yeah. It's places like that and, and people that are just really leveraging shit that they love that make me wish I was a beer drinker. That was a ringing endorsement. I was like, that deep cut was essentially a sponsor spot. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I mean, hey, uh, Nick Nunz, if you happen to be listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug True on Twitter. If you come <laughs> check us out and you wanna you wanna do like an interview or whatever, man, like I love your stuff. I would love to talk about shit that you love. Like, yes, yeah, yeah, do that. Let's do that. Yeah, we have an audience question. I think. Do we? Usually we do. We absolutely do. Where's this one coming from? All right, all right. So this one's from Stephanie B. Stephanie uh, B. Thanks for that stuff. Uh, what what exactly would be the most terrifying animal that if they could speak? Oh shit! <laughs> uh, Man, if an animal could speak, what would be the most terrifying one to do so? I've got two, and they're like completely polar opposites. Go. All what, right. What, what okay. So one would be an octopus, because they are uh, so horribly, ridiculously insanely intelligent and i think they <laughs> would if they could speak i think they'd probably take over the fucking planet because i think they're probably smarter than we are yeah i think i think i think if an octopus could talk they would drop some fucking knowledge on us and we'd be like <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing right i thought about this like just now that that you <laughs> the assumption is that if they can speak their intelligence level is raised so there are animals out there that are not very intelligent that would be terrifying if they were that intelligent enough to speak like whales yeah. or something like, <laughs> like giant animals that if they could talk, it's like, well, now we're at the top of the food chain. How do you feel about that, bud? <laughs> right. <laughs> With your tiny squishy bodies. Yeah. You meet, you meat bag. I'm a bear. Now I own you. <laughs> On the flip side, I think a goat would be hor- horrifically terrifying if they could speak. Because they are just, they have dead fucking eyes and they creep the shit out of me and they already scream. It's the rectangular pupils, man. Oh, no. Oh, God. The fucking rectangular pupils fuck me up. 
But if they could, because they already scream and they scream and they sound like people. And if they could talk, I think they would just talk at that high <laughs> velocity and volume all the time. And it would just be like, food, food. Oh my God. That's like, oh God. Oh. <laughs> Have you guys seen that video from way back in the day where like a screaming goat was replaced or like juxtaposed with Chris Rock? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that is the funniest uh, fucking choice. video. Cho- choice. And also, I think I agree, goats would be awful, but that's not my choice. My choice is one that I think would be the absolute worst, and that is flies. Oh god. Oh. See, your brain went to a place where I was headed too. I'm not gonna sleep tonight. Oh, yeah, that's not not good. All right, fuck it's us not... up. Give us your reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Look, one, I don't think I need any reasons, but I'll give them anyways. <laughs> um, they're everywhere, and that would be horrible. It's bad enough when you hear like the buzzing near your ear. Imagine mm. if that was like, "Hey, what are you doing?" It'd be terrible. It'd be awful. Uh, but also they. Like, all they do is clean themselves on things. It's just... Look, actually, I take it back. I don't I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what if What if they all sound like Jeff Goldblum? And they're like, mm, oh, yes. Oh, uh, you are you aren't eating that pizza, right? Oh, I'll just, uh, I'll just have a little, a little, ooh, ooh, ooh that, a little nibble there. Yeah. Actually, that might actually help. <laughs> In my head, they were like Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, God. Oh. Oh, that's worse. Yeah, because that's how my brain works, I guess. Yeah. That was much worse. They would be, though, because they would be super fucking annoying and insist upon themselves. (laughs) Not that Gilbert Gottfried does, but they would probably have that really super loud, shrill voice. Yeah. Yeah. You went with you're headed with flies. I was heading. I was heading toward ants. Oh. Insects qualify as animals, but they're 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 more. There are so many ants out there. And if you could, if they could speak, it'd be like a constant susurrus, like just, they would probably chant and oh, it would just be God, everywhere they you chant. walked. They'd be like, hut, 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 oh hut, everywhere gosh. they went. And yeah. <laughs> you'd hear it from like inside your walls and like yep. under your feet oh, as you walked, you'd just you're hear right. this constant, Answer the worst. constant chatter. You win, Alex. You, went. you won that one. Mm. Good Congratulations. Uh. <laughs> I don't know if I want that. I don't want to. Con- it's just nightmare fuel I'm giving you guys. Like. We'll give you an award for this one, but it's just a Furby. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh. Oh, God. I had a Furby as a child, and I didn't have it for long. That's all I'll say about it. <laughs> Yeah, because you were a smart child. Okay. It was 86 day camping. My sister brought her Furby camping one time, and it disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Crazy. Maybe it discovered other Furbies out in the forest and lives happily with his family. <laughs> well, there's more nightmare fuel as all the Furbies out in the forest come yeah, back. Yeah, the, the hidden long. Furby communities, the tribes <laughs> of Furbies. Oh, God. They're like Ewoks, but terrifying. <laughs> I think we need to end this episode because I have, like... I need as many hours as possible between now and when I sleep to try and clear the shit out of my head. <laughs> it's a good call. Well, tell uh, tell the listeners where they can find us. Uh, do you? Should I though? At this point, 
Yeah, I think we need all. Yeah, I. You know what? I'm. I'm going to endure more punishment. Tell them how they can give us more ridiculous questions like this. I'm here for it. Hit us on Twitter and tell us how terrible of an idea this episode was. Uh, <laughs> you can you can yell at us at Space Castle Pod on Twitter or send us an email if you have like a lot to say uh, at Space Castle Podcast at Gmail dot com. Um, I promise, like, if you send us hate mail about this episode, I I won't even be mad. We will respond <laughs> in kind. I'm, I, <laughs> I will read that shit. <laughs> I'm preemptively sorry about talking ants. <laughs> or tell us if you've got an animal that beats ants on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I think that does it for this episode of Space Castle. As always, it is your clubhouse and ours for all things nerdy and horrific, nightmare-inducing conversations that will make sure you don't sleep tonight. I've been DT. I've been Alex. And I, unfortunately, have been Seth. Thank you guys for listening. We will catch you guys next week. Bye. Love you. Sorry.